Romans with Romans chapter 15, verses 5 through 21. I want to encourage you to turn there and stand as we read God's holy word today. It is Romans 15, verses 5 through 21. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written... Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, in Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience, by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this letter to the Romans that we've been studying for many months and are thankful for this opportunity that we've had to see the big picture of your word through Paul to this church, but ultimately to us. Help us to understand these words, apply them to our lives, to enjoy, to be challenged, to be exhorted by them. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Whenever you come to the end of a New Testament letter, it's a good practice to step back and after you've done so much work and carefully studying the letter itself, ask what it was all about. You spend all this time and, and sometimes you discover that the letter is a response to issues that were going on in a particular church. And so you're thankful here many centuries later that there was a church like us that had some of those problems and, and Paul specifically wrote to address them and really was speaking to us as well. But then as we move from that type of letter, 1 Corinthians being an example, we come to a letter like Romans, which is a very different letter. Romans is a finely designed argument that builds one chapter upon another until it arrives at its concluding points in these last several chapters. 
And if you've been with us for the last few months, then you've likely noticed a theme that started back in chapter 11, where Paul talked about the Gentiles being grafted into the tree of Israel. And that tree had to be spiritual Israel because the branches of that tree were both Israelites by birth who were called natural branches and Gentiles by birth who were called wild branches. And the point was that God had not rejected the Israelites, but had extended the gospel to the Gentiles. Because the gospel is not about one's genetics, but about God's elective grace. Then from chapter 12 on, Paul has been talking about how the church, made up of Jew and Gentile, is to live in unity. You can imagine how tough that would have been that time. He said that our love for one another should be reflected in humility and preferring one another. We've also heard about various situations like how we then together should relate to the state or how to relate to weaker brothers and sisters in the faith. And as we arrive here at the end of the letter, it shouldn't be a surprise to read Paul's words in verses 6 and 7. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony, such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus. You see these terms coming out. They stand out, especially in the light of everything we've read, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then I had you read a second passage for this morning. It was Ephesians 4 that says similar things. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness. We've seen that in Romans, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And then here, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, because there is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called, by the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And by one body, Paul, of course, means one united group of Jew and Gentile. That's consistent throughout his letters, who are all united to the one Holy Spirit and who share in one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. And I want to challenge you today by asking you to think about why this is so important and whether or not it motivates you to seek harmony and one voice even here at this local church. Paul wrote this to the Roman church a few decades after Emperor Claudius had expelled the Jews from Rome. From studies of the first century, it seems that Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians were scattered across a number of small groups in the city. The first Jews, the, the few Jews, I should say, left tending to stick to themselves. And you add to the fact that the Jews tended to condemn the Gentiles and the Gentiles tended to mock the, the Jews and you had a problem. So why does Paul spend four chapters, more than 25% of his letter, talking about a united church? Is it just to say, get along? Or is there something more? Well, as we gather together as a relatively small group here in this rented facility in the heart of a small city amongst a state population of several million, it may seem that our group is insignificant. 
Just as any one grouping of people in Rome or Corinth or Thessalonica might have seemed insignificant. But Jesus said that his church would withstand the very gates of hell. And when he said that to Peter, James, and John after the transfiguration, it, those, those words had a, a cosmic ring to them, didn't it? The devil, hell, the forces of the world would all be set against Jesus' church, the one he would establish. Certainly, there would, have, there would be no contest, right? I mean, given what small, insignificant churches face, the, the, there would seem to be no contest the other direction. would be overwhelmed. We can't even get along with one another. 75 sub-denominations in every denomination, right? Fragmented, hopeless, helpless. How could the church be victorious? It was doing everything it could, even in, in the first century, just to survive. But when Jesus said that hell would not prevail against the church, you have to realize he was referring to this spiritual war that began when? It began all the way back in Genesis, all the way back at Genesis 3, the Garden of Eden. And there we saw God telling Adam and Eve that there would be this constant war between the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent. God's people are the seed of the woman. The seed of the serpent are those who are in rebellion against God, ultimately led by the devil. And Christ is the seed of the woman. He's ultimately the one to which all of that was propelling, and we are united to him. And so we might say that the church, all the way back in Genesis 3, the church was that goal to which the whole of redemptive history had been progressing because it was the proof that Jesus was victorious over the serpent, crushed its head. And that's why Jesus spoke of building a church that would continue to withstand even the onslaught of hell. You don't have the seed of the woman dying on the cross and a great victory only to have what he came to produce be defeated, right? Was the devil going to be all that excited that Christ crushed his head at the cross? No, he would do everything that he could to disrupt Christ's continued work through the church. And that's why in a likely familiar passage to you in Ephesians 3. Paul says these words of this gospel, I was made a minister. It's one of my favorite passages. According to the gift of God's grace, which is given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. This is the part that I like so much. And to bring to light for everyone, which is including the principalities and powers what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I quote that passage often because it is such a powerful reminder of our calling. We, the church are to bring light for everyone. Light is a perfect metaphor. It reveals things 
Light does that were once hidden and makes them plain. And what the church makes plain is the wisdom of God in having made a church made up of Jew and Gentile. That's the point. A church made up of redeemed saints, uh, sinners who were once in rebellion against him. And Paul is not just saying, therefore, get along. He's saying, live in harmony, glorify God with one voice, because the entire created order is watching. Wanting to see, testing to see if God was wise in saving us and creating the church. Can such diverse people truly be in unity, serving one another, loving one another in themselves? It wasn't too long ago that we were in the book of Daniel, but I draw your attention to this passage again in Daniel 7, where it says, I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. And that dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and the kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And what this passage adds to what we just looked at in Ephesians 3 is an insight into who these rulers and authorities in heavenly places are. In Daniel 7, there's the Ancient of Days. Seated on the throne, and, and before him are arrayed all the peoples and the nations and the languages of the earth. There are myriads of angels. We even see in an earlier verse in that chapter the forces of Satan that are symbolized by the horn that speaks against the Lord. So what we have here is the entire created order, both in heaven and on earth. And into the midst of this group comes the Son of Man, whom we know to be Jesus. That was his favorite title for himself. And verse 27 of Daniel 7 says, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. And his kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. And one of the things that was, was interesting about Daniel chapter 7 is we expect the dominion to be given over to the Son of Man. But then to have the Son of Man turn around and give that dominion to the people of the saints of the Most High. What it says is that the people of God, the saints of, of the Most High, are so united to Christ that rule by Jesus is effected by the rule of his people, the rule of the church. And so again, Paul is not just saying, get along. That's a minimum. But it's because there's this bigger picture. It's because there's this created order. There is the entire universe of spiritual and physical reality watching and as we live out what it means to be the church, we are extending Christ's dominion over that creation. We are ruling as his representatives. And so it is a glorious calling. And it's a victorious calling. I know that the letter of Romans began on what seemed like a hopeless tone. 
Because where it began was all of creation suppressing the truth of God, right? Despite the fact that what could be known about God, his invisible attributes clearly manifest in the things that have been made. That's what we learned back in Romans chapter 1. So all of creation suppressing the truth of God and bondage and sin and death exchanging the truth for a lie so that many of those who even considered themselves religious in chapter 2 were in fact hypocrites. Then chapter 3, none sought after God, not a single person. But into that hopelessness stepped God, sending his son. And suddenly in chapters 5 through 8, everything pivoted. The one who gave us everything in dying for us, that great statement in chapter 5, shall he not in his resurrected life continue to give everything for us? To strengthen us, to comfort us. And how did he do it? He sent his Holy Spirit. Such that chapter 8 tells us nothing now can separate us from the love of God. We are more than conquerors, right? And then it got even better because with that indwelling Holy Spirit, the, the people of God, according to chapters 12 through 14, can actually put on Jesus Christ called armor of light. It's a great metaphor. Stop making provision for the flesh and the works of darkness. Paul's saying it is possible to live in unity. And he wanted us to be grounded in the reality of what took place, how hopeless we were, what it took God, and the confidence that if God would save us out of that, will he not preserve us? Will he not keep us? Will he not strengthen us? But if all of that is true, by the time we get to these last chapters, not only should we be thankful for what God has done, but we should saying, be saying, why are we thinking that we're insignificant as a people? Why are we thinking that it's impossible or that we're unable to do this? Look at what God did to make it happen. Look at what God continues to do. It is possible to live in unity. It is possible to humbly serve one another and prefer one another. And all of that reveals the mighty church of God. And the amazing thing about all of it is that God planned it that way from the beginning. That gives us even greater confidence. Many in Jesus' time, though, hadn't caught all of the hints in the Old Testament that God intended to include all the nations and the blessings promised to Israel. So when when Christ came to fulfill God's plan, most simply rejected him. And as we see in verses 8 through 9 of our morning's passage, Paul says, I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. Now he's kind of bringing in the Old Testament context to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So all the way back, first books, first years of time in the history of, of God's people, and in order that the Gentiles, that's the conclusion, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And then Paul is quoting in these verses, and then in verses 10 through 11, four times he quotes from every section in the Old Testament. He quotes from Deuteronomy, which is in the Torah or the law of God. He quotes from the Psalms, 
and he quotes from Isaiah. So the law, the Psalms, the prophets, every part of the scriptures told the people to expect God's mercy to come upon both Jew and Gentile. And even Jesus gave hints about that truth in his ministry. For example, chose 12 disciples, right? Who later became apostles. Why 12? Why not 17 or 5 or 9? Well, 12 was such a prominent number from the Old Testament. Most obvious being the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 leaders of the nation. And the connection is then confirmed in the book of Revelation. But what Jesus was communicating was that these 12 would be the leaders of the next era of the church. And when I say the church, of course, I mean the church, the called out people of God that stretch all the way back even before Christ. It began as, as national Israel, but even then with some of the Gentiles brought in. Somebody like a Rahab, somebody like a Ruth brought in to the nation. It was overseen then by the 12 tribes, but in the New Testament area, it includes more prominently, and, and not just related to ethnic Israel, but more prominently Israelite, Gentile, throughout all the world, it's overseen by the 12 apostles. And the result of that ministry would be the conversion of the nations. An entry into this kingdom community that Jesus would call his household in Matthew 10, 25, his family in Matthew 12, 46, and perhaps most significant of all, his flock. When he does that, he uses one of the most powerful metaphors of the Old Testament where God was said to be the shepherd of his people Israel, constantly described as a shepherd, and Jesus says, I am the chief shepherd of my flock that includes the Gentiles. Talk about being controversial. So Jesus surely did intend not only to establish a church, but a church that would not just be a group of people like us who meet once a week in a local facility. He wanted to build a covenant community, one which paralleled but went even further and deeper than that community of the Old Testament Israel because it now incorporates the Gentiles together with the Jews, a people who would actually be able to spend eternity in the presence of a holy God. People who were once rebels, people who once served idols, dead in sin, captive to the devil. And that is the great mystery, isn't it, of God's love. The great mystery of Ephesians 3. And even earlier in chapter 2 of Ephesians we, we read the stunning statement in verse 7 that the reason that God rescued us from death and made us alive in Christ is not just to manifest his wisdom that chapter 3 brings out, but so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us. Wow. That is amazing. God sent his Messiah to die for our sins, to rise again in order to create a church of Jew and Gentile on whom he could spend an eternity lavishing every possible blessing with all of his infinite might. And that leaves us with a question. As we leave this book, the question we are meant to ask, how are we the church 
to live out that calling. How can you, Christian, do this right now? Well, the first and most obvious answer, which we've already talked about, is that we need to demonstrate that wisdom of God's plan. The wisdom of a plan is seen by the fact that it works, that it accomplishes what it intended to do. The death of Christ was not in vain. It has reconciled us to God. We are different people. It has broken down the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. But put that into context today. It's broken down the wall of hostility between different groups of people, different classes of people, different ethnicities of people. It has produced one body. It has given us one hope of God's kindness forever. And we show that wisdom by being the church that God died to create, a church that is united by love, by sound doctrine, by the fruit of the Spirit, whose chief end is to glorify God with one voice. The second, perhaps less obvious answer, flows from the fact that to do that, to do what God asks of us is impossible. Perhaps as you came through the door today and remembered that we are related to one another, you said, yeah, that is impossible. After all, we've come to learn enough about God's wisdom and ways that he doesn't tend to give us things to do that are completely within our abilities, does he? He typically asks us to do the impossible, and then when we depend upon him, he enables us to do what he asks. We aren't the first person First people, first church, to struggle with that. I like, a few centuries ago, one good explanation was given by Thomas Chalmers. Anybody know that name? Some of you do. But many of you probably don't recognize that name. 1908, so just a little over a century ago, a biographer, when he was writing on Chalmers, started with these words, Thomas Chalmers, as all the world knows was born in year 1780. Well, that's, a pretty, that's a pretty bold statement, right? For, for someone a century later to say that all the world knew about Chalmers. But the author thought he was justified because Chalmers was the greatest spiritual force in the country of Scotland during the early 19th century. And his ministry brought about a nationwide, and we might even say worldwide, revival. He was a brilliant man. By 10 years of age, he had learned English and Latin and Greek and Hebrew. By 12, he had surpassed his teachers in those languages and in rhetoric, and they decided to go ahead and send him to St. Andrews University. To this day, Chalmers is still the third youngest student to have ever graduated from St. Andrews. He graduated first in his class. He additionally mastered French and German during that time, as well as taking special interest in mathematics and chemistry. And at 15, he is in the doctorate program at St. Andrews in theology, but he put off his studies for a time because he didn't believe that learning and knowing English, Greek, Hebrew, Latin, French, and German were enough, so instead he wanted to spend a little bit extra time learning Spanish, Portuguese, and Italian. Impressed? Well, so was he with himself. Because he had earned his divinity degree, he was ordained as a minister, he was given a pastorate of a small local church, young man in his early 20s, 
And his sermons from that time period were pretty much all about do this and God will be pleased variety. Lotta works oriented righteousness. And he had all kinds of advice, Chalmers did, especially about following his example and how to fulfill the church's calling in its own strength. But then at 28, Chalmers went through a series of personal trials. He lost an older brother and sister to tuberculosis, and then he himself became sick. And it was during the months of his recovery that he says he's truly converted. He said, I began to consider my pride. And he later wrote, what are the objects of mathematical science? Magnitude, proportions of magnitude. But in the foolishness of my youth, I had forgotten the two chief magnitudes. I had forgotten about the littleness of time. And I recklessly thought not of the greatness of eternity. How did Chalmers go from prideful living and making provision for the flesh that Paul warns us about in Romans to the type of humility and preferring one another that we are exhorted to by Paul? I'll let Chalmers answer for himself. He says, no peace or true obedience can ever be obtained. I want you to hear that. What Paul has been putting out before us But he's saying, do this, do this, do this. Chalmers is saying, no no peace, no true obedience can ever be obtained. Like you, You grasp at this as something to put on, to start doing. The true message is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And when this belief enters the heart, joy and confidence enter along with it. The righteous who try to work salvation out for themselves, he said, find that righteousness ultimately eludes their impotent grasp. But when sovereign grace grasps our heart, it is not just a revolution in our souls that is affected. The whole world must be changed. The whole world will be changed. For that is the gospel, and the gospel is true. And during that same period, he preached a famous sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. That was such a great title. Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And as I read a few words that he said, I want you to replace the phrase impure desire with the concept that Paul's talked about in the last few chapters about making no provision for the flesh. And Chalmers said, the best way to disengage an impure desire, the best way to stop doing what Paul's been telling us to stop doing, is to engage a pure one. Don't just root out the bad. Replace it with something better. The best way, he said, to expel the love of what is evil is to embrace the love of what is good instead. To be specific, we must replace the object of our sinful affection with an infinitely more worthy one, God himself. In this way, we do not move from a full heart into a vacuum. Your heart was an idol factory, as Calvin says. Your heart was full of yourselves. 
You don't just root all of that out and say, that's what I needed to do. That's what we need to do to be a church that's united and with one voice glorifying God. I just need to stop doing that. As he says, you don't move from a full heart to a vacuum. We move from a full heart to a heart bursting with fullness. And the expulsive power of our new affection weakens and even destroys the power of sin in our hearts. If we want to love one another better, we must love God. There is no other solution than to, to fulfill the calling that God has given us as a church than to adore Jesus. That is the only true solution. And Paul said something similar in Galatians 5, 17 that we read a few weeks ago. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. What does that imply? Desire the things of the Spirit, and they will naturally war against the things of the flesh. How do we overcome all of these things? How do we avoid being a chaotic, multi-voiced mass of selfish people? As Chalmers says, which is really what Paul and others have said, our godly desires must overcome And perhaps we can see now the reason why Paul spent time telling us about God's great love in the middle of this letter. You see, it wasn't only to make you thankful, but to see how incomparably desirable and profitable your God is. The very one who loves you to the uttermost the one whose love cannot be overcome by anything, any height or depth or width or any power, sword, whatever it may be. Nothing can overcome the love of God. When you begin to meditate upon that truth, when you bask in that, not only are you thankful, but your appetite for sin grows ever weaker. And in Chalmers' words, you expel it altogether because there is not enough room in your heart for both. And then that love, that heart, as Chalmers would say, that is bursting with fullness, expresses itself in obedience. So instead of grasping for the right works to do, we find that it happens naturally as we deepen in our relationship with God. So brothers and sisters, we have an incomparable calling. And your gift and your part may seem small. It may, at this moment, seem insignificant. But realize that it is part of God's eternal revelation of his glory. And what is at stake is not merely being the light of the world, but being the light of the universe. And we, as part of the church, are the showcase of God's mercy. We must, we must not fail to live as the joyful beneficiaries of that grace. We cannot bring reproach upon the wisdom of God.
And in Jesus' prayer, just to conclude everything that we find in John 17, he prayed for the church that he was about to leave behind. And his prayer was, was marked by six different characteristics, by joy. One, he wanted the church to, to be one that experienced joy, holiness, truth, a sense of mission, love. And the sixth one was unity. And he prayed distinctly for all of those, but the one he prayed for the most, you'd think was love, was actually unity. And he said this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them, you and me, and they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Did you see that? When we are united together, and ultimately united to Christ, friends, not only do we showcase and prove God's wisdom, but the world believes. The world believes. He says it twice. The world will believe that Jesus is the Savior. So just getting along is about peace amongst ourselves. That's far too small a goal. We want to evangelize the world. And this, friends, is the ultimate purpose of Romans. Perhaps some of you, if you had maybe asked before we studied this letter, maybe you would have said, well, Romans is to prove the sovereignty of God and the depravity of man. And maybe some of you would say, no, Romans, the, the primary purpose is to be an encouragement with regard to salvation and how nothing can separate us from the love of God. And we, in doing that, we pull out some of our favorite proof texts or our favorite sections of Romans. And those are all worthy parts of this magnificent letter. But everything has been, all of that drives forward to the call of the church. That is the purpose. And may the Lord, and what he has done in this letter, exhort that kind of unity in us in the weeks to come. Let's pray. Father, you are a glorious and gracious God who calls us to something higher than ourselves, something that we cannot produce on our own. We can't grasp at obedience. But Lord, you have called upon us to love you fully. To love you with abandon, to love you in a gratitude for the grace that you've given us so that by extension our hearts will be bursting with fullness and that we will desire to serve one another. We will naturally prefer one another. We will live in humility and the world will know. May that be true, even of us in this valley, that the world will know. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.